Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another great episode. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different from a lot of our past episodes because it's just going to be me on here. So we're not going to bring in a guest, uh, and I'm going to share a lot of my observations, a lot of my notes from a festival that I recently attended. It's called the Aspen Ideas Festival. And it's really a conference, but it is much more than a conference. It is where some of the best thought leaders gather to share what's on their mind, to discuss. They have all kinds of experiences. They have debates. They have panels. They have interactive experiences. And I figured I would capture the four days that I spent at the conference with all of you and share it in today's episode. Before we get to all of that, I want to let you know about a program that I run for executives. If you're listening to this and you're interested in developing your leadership skills, your communication skills, uh, your performance, uh, I run an accelerator for a select group of executives where I coach them one-on-one and then I bring them together for group experiences on Zoom and also in person at an annual retreat. My next cohort launches in September and I still have a few spots left. So if you've ever been interested in coaching, feel free to reach out to me. I'd love to talk to you. Uh, My email is brian at strongskills.co. That's brian at strongskills.co. And I'd love to connect and learn about what you're up to on your journey and help you figure out ways that you can get better. I am so grateful for the clients that I get to coach on a regular basis and the community that we've created with the Accelerator program. It is a wonderful group of people who are just looking to improve and get better. And if you're someone who is in that mold and always trying to improve, I would love to connect with you. All right, so now to the Ideas Festival. So what is it? It takes place over about eight days, but they have two different sessions. So I went to the second session and I was blown away by the information that was shared, by the access, by the people that were presenting. Recently, I had a client ask me, hey, how do you focus on your own education and your own improvement? And I invest in a coach. I read, I podcast, I do a lot, but there's nothing like being in person and experiencing what I did at the Ideas Festival. To interact, to listen, to take notes. I took 12 pages of handwritten notes over these three and a half days, really four days. And it was just a reminder of the power of education. And we don't need to be formally in school to continue to grow and become educated, but we do need to seek out opportunities to learn. And this experience was certainly a learning experience for me. And even though it's a few weeks since I attended the event, I find myself referencing the experiences and the lessons learned throughout this podcast and my work with my clients. So I'm going to share some of my thoughts in today's conversation, but I'm also going to share a lot of the speakers and the panelists that I heard from, and we're going to synthesize those together to really focus on four main themes that I picked up on at the conference. Number one was this idea of well-being, a lot of talk around happiness and what it means to be healthy. So we'll talk about well-being in today's conversation. We also will talk about building a strong organization. As you know, if you've listened to previous episodes I love studying culture and how organizations can create the conditions and the environments to help their people thrive. And so I went to a lot of talks around the idea of ways in which you could build a strong organization. 
We also talked about a changing landscape. So that's going to be a third theme that we'll discuss in today's episode. This idea that the U.S., our culture, our economy is constantly changing and that we are going to continue to evolve over the years and we either evolve or we die. And so we all need to be thinking about the constantly changing technology and the landscape that we are all in and the environments that we find ourselves in. Lastly, artificial intelligence was probably the central theme of the whole Ideas Festival. There was some mind-blowing information shared around AI. And to be honest, I'm still a newbie and a novice when it comes to artificial intelligence, but I know I'm not alone. So I'm going to share some of what I learned in terms of that and how it may impact and disrupt our society. Um, So we're going to talk about those four themes, well-being, building a strong organization, a changing landscape, and artificial intelligence. And as you'll see as I discuss all of these themes, there's going to be a lot of ethical dilemmas that come up for all of us. And I'm a deep believer in the power of polarity. If you've read my book, Shift Your Mind, you know I believe in polarity and the idea that and is probably more powerful than or. And I think ethical dilemmas often involve and instead of or. Uh, Usually if we have a dilemma, it's because we're not sure what to do. And there's either two good options or two bad options. And sometimes we have to pick between them. So the conference, the festival really did talk quite a bit about the power of and and polarity. And most of the time when we're in nuanced dialogue and conversation or even arguments, there's usually a polarity at place. Things very rarely are black and white, and the world often lives in the gray. And so I appreciated this festival because a lot of the speakers really talked about the gray more than the black and white. And I think that's where a lot of our answers and innovation lives, breathes, and comes from. So the idea of either or thinking is often limiting, and most of our decisions do require us to think wider and think broader than simply narrowing in on one possibility. So as you're listening to this, I hope you will take on a polarity mindset. Hopefully it won't sound hypocritical or flip-floppy, but sometimes when we live in polarity, you can hear some of that come out as well. So let's start with this idea of well-being. Let's start with you and me. Let's look inward. If we aren't healthy, nothing else really matters. And there were a lot of talk uh, throughout the festival around students. And I've been fortunate to be on a lot of college campuses and work with college students, and they are often incredible. But this stat really stood out to me, which is 55% of students are in therapy. Think about that. More students are in therapy than are not. And look, I'm a believer in therapy. I've seen a therapist. I think it can be an amazing tool to become more introspective and to learn about ourselves and to navigate the world by understanding ourselves better. And if you've seen a therapist, you probably have experienced some of that. And there's the and. What are we doing? Where are we going? Is therapy working? I don't know. I do know that there are a lot of challenges that we have from a mental health standpoint with our young people, but also with our adults. And therapy has become more destigmatized than it ever has before. And if I was at uh, any sort of psychological association, I would be thinking about this. 
how successful are we being in helping our people develop the resilience, develop the skills, and the ability to do hard things and deal with the challenges that life is going to throw at us? And make no mistake, if you live long enough, you're going to face adversity. And our ability to handle that adversity and not just handle it, ideally grow from it, often determines how our life shakes out. And so that staff, 55% of students are in therapy, was shared by Arthur Brooks, who's an author and a professor at Harvard. And that really stood out to me and made me just wonder and ponder, well, if people are getting help and yet we are struggling, how are we doing? And maybe we need to do a deep dive into that. And then also Arthur talked a lot about that all humans possess the same emotions. We may use them differently and at different times, but those emotions are often used for survival purposes. And of the basic emotions, four tend to be negative and two tend to be positive. So when we get into the grab bag of our emotions, and this is something that you can explore with a therapist, where do we tend to grab from? And that's why we often hear coaches say to athletes or people that are coaching musicians to not get emotional uh, when they're performing and to be more stoic and even keel. Or we ask our managers to be more even keel and stoic than to be emotional. It's because we do tend to over-index on the negative emotions. They're more intense. And because of that, we actually just need to be better at managing our emotions. If you want to be a great manager, you need to understand that part of your job as a manager is to connect with human beings, and we connect with human beings on an emotional level. And yet, if you don't bring those emotions to work, you're not going to be seen as human, so you're not going to be able to connect. And if we bring those emotions to work, we have to understand that some of those emotions might be negative and that because of that, we need to manage our emotions, but we don't need to eradicate them. We don't need to get rid of them. That's not going to help us. Once again, we're not going to come off as authentic. We're not going to be able to connect with humans. And if you're in a managerial position, your job is involving humans. So Arthur really talked a lot about that. He studies happiness. He studies well-being. And so I thought that was just something that I would bring to all of you around this idea of emotions. How are you managing your emotions? What are you doing when some of those negative emotions creep up and creep in? And how do you make sure they don't hijack you and your work and your ability to lead other people? So that's where we'll start is just on this idea of checking in with yourself. Where are you? I love to use uh, something that our former podcast guest of ours, Alexander Kalei, uses where he calls it your state of mind. And he rates people from a plus three to a minus three and has them check in with themselves and their emotions to see where they're at. And for all of us, we need to think about that from a moment-to-moment basis and from a day-to-day basis. Where are we? How can we locate ourselves? And once again, going back to that idea of therapy, therapy does do a lot of location and make sure that people are checking in with themselves and where they are, but also where they've been and where those emotions come from. So let's start there. And I just ask you to take a pause here and check in with yourself. Where are you from an emotional standpoint? From there... Um, I want to bring in this idea of well-being in our career. So once we start inward and we, and we think about, all right, where are we uh, sort of day-to-day, moment-to-moment, let's zoom out a little bit and think about where are we from a career standpoint or from a life standpoint. So there was a great speaker there named Bruce Feiler, and he talked about this concept, which is if you could answer and fill in the blank of this statement, I am at a moment in my life when. I am at a moment in my life when. So before we are checking on your state of mind right now, if we zoom out just a bit and think like Bruce asked us to think, I'm at a moment in my life when. 
And you could answer that from a career standpoint, from a personal standpoint, from a relationship standpoint, but we can really use this statement anytime we are transitioning in some sort of component. So I'm at a moment in my life where I just started a new job. I'm at a moment in my life when I'm focused on my kids. I'm at a moment in my life when I'm heading toward retirement. But we need to check in with ourselves and where we are in the moment. We need to ground ourselves on where we are and audit our emotions and the stories that we are carrying about ourselves to determine where we are going. So if you want to get to somewhere, it's helpful for you to realize where you are now. And so Bruce did a really good job of capturing that. And what he started to point out was that the people who are happiest actually dig instead of climb. This is a really cool statement that he said, the people who are happiest dig instead of climb. Going back to that resilience piece that we mentioned earlier, that requires digging. If you want to be resilient, you're going to have to be gritty. You're going to have to be agile. You're going to have to have a growth mindset and focus on learning and getting better. Those require a bit of digging, a bit of introspection, a bit of figuring out your purpose or your values. And he said the people who are happiest happiest really align with digging, doing the hard work, going toward meaning, going toward purpose, going toward fulfillment over achievement. And the climb is about achievement. That's why you hear people say it's all about the journey because they know that the achievement is not necessarily going to be the most fulfilling thing, but the digging, the getting dirty, the getting underneath the surface, that's where a lot of the fulfillment comes from. And it's not to say that achievement or the climb are, are bad, But Bruce, in all of his research, really focused and found that fulfillment is what's most key to happiness. So once again, it doesn't mean that those people don't value achievement, but they know that achievement without fulfillment is empty. It's hollow. Climbing is fine, but let's not forget to dig deep as well. And the most fulfilling things require a dig, a digging deep of sorts. Also, Bruce talked a lot about jobs and that the average person has about five jobs that they're currently doing. We live in a society in a world right now where most people are not singularly focused on one thing, that we all carry these different jobs. And I started writing down as I was listening to Bruce talk about what jobs do I hold. And I realized like I have at least 10. I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm a friend, I'm a coach, I'm a podcaster, I'm a writer, I'm an athlete or exerciser, at least I try to be. Uh, I'm a board member, I'm a facilitator, I'm a speaker. I wear a lot of different jobs and a lot of different hats. I think for some of my life, I've questioned whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. You go to a cocktail party and someone asks what you do, it's kind of hard to rattle off those 10. It's cleaner and simpler if I were to say I'm a lawyer, I'm a doctor, I'm an accountant, I'm an athlete. People understand that. In my world, mainly as a coach, people usually don't understand what I do for a living and they don't really understand the idea of what I do for a living. So it sometimes could be easier to just say I'm one thing. But the reality is my job is I wear a lot of different hats and it was liberating to hear Bruce say that most people actually do whether they realize it or not. So even that doctor, lawyer, or accountant, where it seems like it's very clean as far as what they do for a living, they probably have other things that they also are doing, whether it's on purpose or not. And that all of us should lean in to these different jobs. And instead of thinking of our identity in one one frame as far as what we do, 
Let's think of it from a broader perspective and think about how we're prioritizing our time based on those jobs. So I found that to be really, really liberating. Um, the other thing that was interesting, Kevin Kelly, the author um, and founder, co-founder of Wired, uh, spoke on the panel with Bruce and he dropped out of college. And Arthur Brooks, who I mentioned earlier, also dropped out of college. Yet both of these people have a massive impact on some of the best minds in the world. And they've written best-selling books and taught at our best universities and are speaking at the Aspen Ideas Festival. And it just made me think that success, once again, is not always just about the climb, that sometimes we have to dig deep and maybe take a step back if we want to take a step forward. And Arthur and Kevin, who are both really well-respected thought leaders, both dropped out of college. And we often think of dropouts as being bad or people that quit uh, as being people that don't have grit or tenacity or focus. But a lot of times we might need to quit something in order to go to another place. Annie Duke, who's one of the podcast guests that we've had on here and wrote a book called Quit, really highlighted what comes from quitting and that there are all kinds of opportunities that can come forward from that experience. So I thought uh, both Kevin and Arthur sharing that they dropped out of college to pursue other endeavors uh, was kind of inspiring from from my lens. There's something beautiful about that. Uh, I remember in my when I graduated from college, I went to Syracuse University, and Billy Joel was the commencement speaker, and he mentioned how many honorary degrees he has, um, and he speak he's spoken at all these different universities, but I think he actually dropped out of high school, and so Billy was obviously speaking at a commencement uh, because he had been successful, and yet he hadn't formally really gone too far when it comes to education. So once again, if we go back to well-being, this idea of constantly learning and not necessarily associating that learning with the degree is something that really stuck with me. And and for the record, I'm very pro-formal education. I've done a whole heck a lot of formal education and I value it. I think it's great. But I think sometimes we don't think about the informal education that we also need to focus on and get, like going to a festival or listening to a podcast or reading a book. And so there's all kinds of ways to acquire knowledge and wisdom beyond the classroom. Um, Also, Kevin, who I mentioned before, Kevin Kelly, he had this line that I thought was really simple but powerful, where he said, wealth is essentially your capacity to control your time. It makes me think about the power of autonomy. And if we have the autonomy and the ownership to control our schedule and control our time, perhaps that is true wealth. Perhaps that is true success. Um, And a lot of us don't take advantage of the options that we might have and we don't push the boundaries or create the boundaries necessary to control our own time. So when he said that, that was something that stuck with me. It's definitely something that I've been working on in my own life is to try to create some boundaries to control my time. And I'm in a service industry. I coach 30 executives. Uh, They require time. Uh, There is no way to coach them without blocking the calendar. And so I've learned to be pretty relentless with blocking off the time that I'm not with them to make sure I'm getting to do some of the things that I want to do in my life. And this is something else Kevin said is he said, the thing that makes you weird as a kid can make you great as an adult. And I think about that for myself. I was always called sensitive as a kid. I can hear my brothers now saying, Hey, Brian, stop being so sensitive. Or some of my friends saying, stop being so sensitive. And yet my ability to connect with a a large, wide range group of people, either on the podcast or my clientele, I think is in part because I am sensitive. I do care about people. I do have this part of me that is a little bit softer. 
And maybe that allows me to have a wider range and a wider lens to connect with people. So I can connect with a guy who's, who's very hard and strong. And I can also connect with a gal who might be a little more soft. And I think being weird as a kid at whatever it is, it makes you weird. There is some superpower in there. There is an unfair advantage in there that I wish I had tapped into maybe when I was younger. And I hope that young people that might be listening to this are sort of leaning into their weirdness as they take on the world. Uh, going back to Bruce Feiler, uh, he found that one out of, out of 15 people who were happy in their careers followed their passion. So following your passion is actually what Billy Joel recommended that I do when I graduated from college. He said, uh, do what you love and love what you do. It was very simple. That was really his message. And then he played some music and everyone had a good time. But Bruce is basically suggesting that that's bad advice, that following your passion is very limiting and that most people who are happy in their career, that's not the approach they take. And perhaps following your passion is, is poor advice. Maybe follow something that is interesting. Following, follow something that can give you an opportunity to grow and learn and develop that you can be curious about. Uh, following your passion could be a, a path for some, but I think sometimes we focus too much on passion and less about doing. And maybe the passion will come from the doing instead of the doing coming from the passion. So that's something for all of us to think about, especially those who are still trying to figure out where they want to go in their career. Let's look beyond passion. It can be a, a decent place to start, but I don't think it's an end-all be-all. And I think all of us need to look a little more inward and not just simply at our passion. Um, in addition to that, he talked about what does it mean and when is it appropriate for us to leave a job? And this really struck me. He said, when the pain of staying is larger than the pain of leaving, hmm. when the pain of staying is larger than the pain of leaving, that often is when we get our butts off the seat and say, we're out of here. But there is an important piece to this puzzle, which is Understanding and acknowledging that change does involve pain. It does. So if you're experiencing some pain, it might be an indicator that we need to change. And if we are going to take a leap, whatever it might be in a relationship or in a career, we also need to understand that that leap might also involve pain. So we can't numb pain. We can't dull it. We need to manage it. And we need to be aware that it's going to be part of a process that involves leaving. Um, so we need to listen to it. I, I think emotions, which we talked about earlier, they're just radar. They're giving us information. They're data sets. Sometimes they're useful. Sometimes they're not. But we really need to think about what that data is saying and be intentional about leveraging it or managing it. Um, we also often learn from our parents. And this is something Bruce talked a lot about is that parents often impact us in ways that we're not even realizing. And this was a really cool thing that he pointed out, which is when he asked people what they learned from their parents, they often would say work ethic. I watched where I observed my parents work hard and that instilled a work ethic in me. But he then asked, well, what's the number one downside that you learned from your parents? What's the number one thing that you witnessed that you don't want to emulate? And people in his research actually said overwork. And so what's really interesting is the number one thing that we learn from our parents may be work ethic. And the number one thing we also learn is maybe too much work and burnout. And so there's this paradigm there. There's a polarity there of like, how do we value work ethic, but not value overworking? 
And that's something for us all to think about, which is, are we working hard or are we overworking? And trust me, I'm all about working hard. I think working hard, there are no shortcuts to get to where you want to go. Um, we'd have to work hard and going back to fulfillment, which we talked about earlier, work ethic is absolutely aligned to fulfillment. When I'm most fulfilled, it's usually because I dug, I dug deep and I worked hard, but overworking that can be really, really dangerous. And we need to think about what that does to our relationships, what it does to our health. It can really, um, crumble us in a lot of different ways. And we often have learned that from our parents. So as you're sitting here and you're listening, it's a question for you to be asking yourself, do I work hard or do I overwork? And let's figure out the distinction there and make sure that we're leaning into working hard, but not necessarily into overworking. And um, with that idea or that advice in mind, um, it's also worth noting that we should use advice as a reminder that something might not be going the way that we want. So often when someone says to you, you're, you're doing something um, and they're, they're giving you advice on that, they're right in some way. Uh, hey, you uh, should open up a restaurant or you should go start a business. Um, so they have good intentions and oftentimes advice has elements of being right. But what Bruce pointed out was that the solution is often wrong because they don't necessarily know you. And Kevin Kelly said this, he said, the solution often needs to occur from within because you know yourself in the situation better than anyone else can. And so when we're seeking advice, the advice might be somewhat sound, but the solution, let's look inward for the solution. And that stuck with me because people give me advice all the time. And sometimes I struggle with it because the solution isn't there. But how do I listen to the advice while creating my own solution? And that is something that I will continue to work on um, and, and something that I'm continuing to think about. Um, they both talked about parenting quite a bit and that uh, parenting doesn't stop once our children become adults, I went to another talk that really hit on sort of the psychology of the relationship between adults and kids, and that this idea that our parents stay our parents even as we become adults. And some of us that are, I turn 40 next year, fortunately my parents are still around. Uh, they still try to parent me at times, and sometimes maybe I bite back too quickly. But there is a reminder there that parenting is a full-time job. It's a lifetime job, uh, and that we need to really think about uh, how to help our kids, especially when they get hijacked by their emotions. And one of the phrases that a psychologist that I sat in on a discussion with that she suggested using was just by saying to our kids when they get hijacked that, hey, it seems as though you're really not yourself right now. Acknowledge the emotions and acknowledge that they're not necessarily at their best. And it seems as though you're not really yourself right now can be used in our partnerships with our friends, with anyone who might be going through something emotionally that could really hinder them. And I think this is especially important for boys. Um, there was a, a research point that one of the speakers made that said that boys often stop talking about feelings in fourth or fifth grade. Think about that. Boys often stop talking about feelings in fourth or fifth grade. So if we're not acknowledging the feelings and instead we're just trying to mute or shut them down, we're limiting our boys who will become our men in their capacity and their range to connect with themselves and connect with other people. And so we really need to think about our relationship with emotions, especially men and, and boys. Um, and I thought there were some interesting uh, nuggets on depression and, and addiction. So th there was a statement that made 
that was made that said that depression and creativity are linked. So we often think of depression as being a bad thing, but if you study like the best artists of all time, they often had challenges of depression. And perhaps our society needs to rethink about what is depression, what is sadness, and how can we make sure that depression is not cratering people? And we often need to think about what is depression and what is sadness? And I think too often we're blurring those things together and also understand the upside that comes with emotions and that creativity and feeling the desire and the urge to move and go do something often comes from creativity. When I sat in these sessions, I walked out at the end of it thinking, oh man, I think I want to write another book. The creativity was sparked because I was having an emotional experience, a connection, an inspiration. So we need to, once again, leverage the emotions and use them for good. Um, There was a Zen Buddhist quote that really struck me that someone shared, which was, not knowing is the most intimate. Not knowing is the most intimate. And that quote really has me wondering about curiosity and conviction, if you've heard me on this podcast before, you know I, I think the world of curiosity, uh, and I also think our conviction sometimes gets in the way. So if we don't know something, that's the most intimate. And it makes me realize that if we embrace not knowing, then the world becomes a lot closer to us, that we have this capacity and this ability to get to know ourselves better and get to know others better, and it creates an intimate relationship with life. And so I love that idea of not knowing and embracing the not knowing and that our happiness is often about looking out and serving others and looking out the window rather than the mirror and thinking about, all right, what don't I know that I can see out there that I can observe and that I might be able to assist and through not knowing, maybe I can help someone. And when we look outward toward others, we experience generosity, awe, inspiration, Whereas when we focus solely on ourselves and and just our own not knowing and woe is me, we become less intimate. We often experience judgment and miss the happiness that life provides and the experience of what it means to feel alive. And we do, we use drugs. Uh, Obviously, psychedelics is something that's really popular right now, uh, but we numb ourselves with alcohol and all kinds of other substances. And even this stat stuck with me. 93% of Americans consume caffeine. 93% of Americans consume caffeine. I am one of them. And 75% of us consume it every day. And look, I, I love to start my day with a cup of green tea and it gets me sparked and gets me going. But it just got me thinking a little bit about do we have it or does it have us? And whether it's caffeine or alcohol or psychedelics, um, all of these can be used in moderation and used really well and can help us in different ways. But um, do we have it or does it have us? And it's just something for us all to think about when we think about our health and our well-being. Um, and there was a, there's an element of our being that is genetic and then there's an element that is based on our environment and what are we putting in our environment what are we putting into our body there was a lot of talk around exercise and fitness and how that's related to alzheimer's so there was a study that found that walking for 10 to 20 minutes a day decreases the chance of alzheimer's 
very significantly. There was a lot of talk around just working out and using your legs and using your legs to work out. Your legs have the biggest muscles in your body. So if you work out your legs in some capacity, whether it's a run or a bike or elliptical or lifting weights or squats or whatever it might be, that that's going to actually help you throughout the day. So movement improves our mood, our focus, our attention, our reaction ability. And it made me think about, well, what if business actually had recess built in to organizations? We're going to talk about building a strong organization in a bit. But movement has become so powerful for us. And a lot of us are not moving enough throughout our days. I know sometimes I'm sitting here podcasting, coaching, and I'll look up and I'll have like 250 steps in my day. And so what can we do from an organizational standpoint and an individual standpoint to be well, to be healthy, to make sure that we are using our legs uh, because they play a huge role in the rest of the body and how we operate, including our brain. And our brains really benefit from this formula of whenever we create some complexity for our brain, we create purpose in the brain, and we create challenge in the brain, then the brain is going to be healthier. But in addition to those things, movement is so, so critical to getting the brain going. And it actually involves challenge. Uh, When we challenge the body, it actually impacts our brain uh, and it gets our brain moving in the right direction. So there was a lot of talk around movement, emotions, mindset, happiness, career, um, just getting clear on clear on our purpose and and what we want and what leads to fulfillment. And those were some of the highlights when it comes to well being. As I mentioned, building a strong organization also was a big piece to a lot of the sessions that I sat in on. And I mentioned a recess in business. You know, we take breaks all the time to go on social media or look at our emails or maybe grab a cup of coffee or go to the water cooler. But our our businesses really are not set up for recess. And I'm pretty critical of our school system in a lot of ways. But one thing that our school system gets right is they give our kids recess. They know the power of movement. And when you get kids moving, it gets them more creative and can get them more focused. We don't do that enough in our businesses. So if you're building a strong organization, I would challenge you and implore you to think about how you can create movement into your processes, into your meetings, into your culture, and what that will do for the health, not just physically, but also mentally of your people. So building a strong organization was another big theme. I heard from the CEO of Ralph Lauren. I heard from the CEO of Dannon. I heard from uh, people that were really obsessed and curious and interested in what it takes to build a strong organization. So I'm going to share some of the notes I had on that front. And we're going to start with this idea of vision and where you believe you're going matters. And one of the uh, uh, panelists shared a... Um, story about a bricklayer and the bricklayer was building a cathedral and that if you have a bricklayer is just a bricklayer, they may not, not be inspired by what they're doing, but if they're building a cathedral, man, that can inspire. And I just recently did a tour of the national cathedral here in the, in Washington, DC. And the national cathedral is a building that I've driven by probably hundreds of maybe even thousands of times. I'm born and raised in Washington, D.C. in this area, and I go into the city quite a bit, and I pass it uh, on my commute into the city, and I've never been inside of it. And just looking at the attention to detail that uh, the people that put that building together over the last hundred years or so is just remarkable. The stained glass, uh, the carvings, all of the work that goes into a cathedral, it's inspiring. 
but if you're just a bricklayer, you're just a bricklayer. But one of the things they told me on the tour of the National Cathedral is that everybody that works on it and renovates it has to go through a tour to understand the significance of the cathedral and who has spoken there, whether it's Martin Luther King or past presidents, that that our buildings and our spaces actually have meaning and actually have purpose. And so vision can inspire. And it, it reminds me of the old, uh, the old, John F. Kennedy quote where he goes to NASA and he asks a janitor, Hey, what are you doing? And the janitor responds, I'm helping put a man on the moon, Mr. President. And so if we think about the vision and we are working towards something, we have a great sense of belonging in our organizations. And the CEO of Ralph Lauren said that he believes he's in the dream business, that Ralph Lauren at the end of the day is there to inspire people and let their dreams show. And so once again, like having a vision for what we want to create and what we want people to feel emotionally and inspiration often comes from feeling and emotions. Uh, those are so, so key when you're building a strong organization. Um, and then if you have clarity on the vision, then you can pass that down to the people in your organization who are actually connected to the customer. So Shane Grant, who's the CEO of Dannon, talked about that everybody in the organization is serving those who are serving their customers. So I'm either in touch with the customer or I'm managing somebody who's connected to the customer. And it reminds me of Simon Sinek's work around authority and that we should always give those that are closest to the information the most authority, the most autonomy, so they can make decisions in real time. And a lot of times we stifle or we limit the autonomy or the ownership or the authority of people that are actually connected to our customers. So we want to connect information to management to make sure that decisions can be made in real time when they need to do it. And a lot of times we stifle or we hamper the ability for those that are connected to our customers to make decisions that can help them thrive. And it reminded me of the CEO of Uber who I heard talk, uh, his name's Dara. And Dara talked about how he like every other week or every three weeks will drive an Uber and he wants to experience what it's like to be an Uber driver. He knows he can experience what it's like to be an Uber consumer, but he wants to get into the shoes of his people. At the end of the day, his Uber drivers are what makes his organization go. And if he doesn't know what the experience is like for them, then he's not going to have much of a company. So I love the idea that he actually gets into that seat and experiences it. And there's a lot to learn there so that they can better serve their customer. Once again, you want to get as close to that customer experience as possible if you want to build a strong organization. And decision-making was a common theme throughout the conference. And it's so essential for organizations to have a well-determined decision-making process, because ultimately that's going to impact the culture as much as anything. And so for decision-making, it's really important to have frameworks and systems and, and processes set up to ensure that decisions are made with the most intent possible. And uh, I said this earlier, and I'll repeat it again. This idea that there are two types of employees are those that serve customers and those who serve those with customers, and that we need to think about our organizations that way. And ultimately, you don't have a business if you don't have customers, but sometimes we have management that, that gets disconnected from the customer experience. 
And so they need to think about how they can serve their customers by managing. And I think managers, the best that I know, get really clear and create spaces for communication with their people so that they have a a clear sense of what's going on with their customers. There was a woman named Susan Barton who also spoke uh, about our prison system. And while prison might not be the first place you go to when thinking about creating a strong organization, I do think about what we've done in our society, in our country with our prison system, and how we often punish rather than help. And Susan had this quote where she said, people don't need to be punished, they need to be helped. And look, I'm not one to say that we don't need to have prisons and law and order and our police system. I think we absolutely need all of that. But it is an interesting thing to think about as we zoom out away from prisons and think about what do we do to run our organization? Do we help our people or do we punish them? Which do we focus on? And once again, that's an either or. Um, There are times where we need to punish, but most of the time we need to find creative ways to help each other. And whether that's our prison system or our businesses, I would ask that question to you, which is, are you helping people get better? Or are you just simply punishing them for what they're not doing? And if you're a sport coach, are you helping people or are you simply punishing them? And look, I'm a parent. There are times when my kids need to be punished. But if they're being punished without the intent of helping them, I'm not so sure how useful or beneficial that punishment is. So punishment and helping people, if you're going to use punishment, it better be to help someone. And I would also implore all of us to think about how we can help people without maybe punishing them and what comes with punishment and what are the downsides that we can think about. Um, I want to zoom out a little bit because there was something that really struck me when it came to a conversation around China. And this was one of my big takeaways. Um, there was a panel talking about China and where they're going and trying to predict the future and, and what their next steps are going to be. And someone on the panel said this, and I thought it was just brilliant. They said, anytime you're thinking and speculating about what China will do, you're doing that with American values and not their values. And that's why speculation is so dangerous. And We can see it clearly with China, you know, a communist country and the U.S., a capitalist country where we know we value different things. It's pretty obvious and clean and clear. And yet we still make the mistake of trying to predict what they're going to do with our own biases, with our own values in mind. And it got me thinking about business decisions or even management in general and how often we assume that the other people are thinking exactly like us. For example, if we're a manager, we assume that somebody wants our job one day when they may not. Or if we're running a company, we assume that they share our values when actually they value something completely different. And of course, we sometimes assume that our customers value what we value and we treat them how we would want to be treated rather than how they would want to be treated. And there's the golden rule and the platinum rule. The golden rule is you treat others how you want to be treated. And the platinum rule is you treat others how they want to be treated. And as I think about China and the situation they're in, if we're going to manage China in that relationship, and I am no political expert here, We're going to have to go deep and probe and be curious and try to develop some empathy and and also be aware of our own biases and be aware that we bring our own biases and our own viewpoints into any speculation that we make. I think that's the same thing for a lot of our interaction with humans. We need to be aware of our biases. For example, like I always love the underdog in sports. So whenever I had, I, I used to have an NBA draft website and I would analyze players and I'd always be a fan of the guy who was a little undersized and played his ass off. And I always undervalued the guy who was super skilled and had, you know, great tangible um, aspects to his game. 
And it was a blind spot for me. So our blind spots often occur when we bring our own values and create a bias and we don't see the full picture. So that conversation about China reminded me of that and reminded me of how we often bring our biases and those biases create blind spots for us because we're bringing our values and we're not thinking about what they may value. And it made me think also how easy it is to hate other people over something like Slack if we're using text message. And it's so easy for us to bring our values into a conversation, even over Zoom, right? Like we only see ahead and we go back and forth and it's not like we're in the room together having a drink. It's different. And so it's easier to hate people from far away and it's harder to do so up close. And so we need to also be aware of the lens with which we're looking at things and how our values are shaking and showing up, especially when less communication occurs, like a country like China, where we're not really communicating with them at all. We have a um, a distinct possibility of assuming that things should go a certain way and speculating. And that speculation really can get us into a, a world of trouble. Um, so that was a really, really big piece for me that stuck with me, which is let's not speculate, let's explore, let's continue to be curious, and let's not get to a conclusion too quickly because we're usually doing so with our values in mind. And speaking of values, one of the highlights was uh, actor Brian Cox. If you've watched Succession, you know him. He's Logan Roy. He's sort of uh, the patriarch of the show. And I'm not going to spoil the show for those that haven't watched it. It's fantastic. But he did talk a lot about how acting is about collaboration and how on Succession, he loved getting to know some of the younger actors and mentoring them and collaborating with them and coaching them. And he he spoke at the Ideas Festival pretty openly and candidly quite a bit. And someone asked him about method acting um, because one of the characters in the show was famous for being a method actor. And uh, there's been write-ups in the public. I read an article in GQ magazine that talked about how Brian Cox hated that that actor was being a method actor. If you're unfamiliar with what method acting is, it essentially allows somebody to... to stay in character their entire time they're on the set. So think of Daniel Day-Lewis. He's famous and notorious for being a method actor. Heath Ledger, I think, when he was uh, the Joker, was doing method acting. And so they basically engross themselves in the character. And so they stay in that character even when the cameras are not running. And he talked about method acting and specifically on the show of Succession. And he said, look, like, yeah, you can do amazing work as a method actor, but it's just not necessary. It's actually unnecessary. And this is the piece that really stuck with me. He said, the problem with method acting is it's just about the individual actor. It doesn't take into account the rest of the team and the collaboration that's needed amongst the team. It's just a mirror. It's not a window. It's just focused on them. And so when you have a method actor, they're doing what they need to do to be their best self, but they're not taking into account how that might impact the other actors on the set who might need to relax, might need to actually move away from the script and away from their character and how that method acting could impact them. And it was fascinating to hear an actor talk about this because we think of actors often as individuals, but he was talking about how chemistry is so, so key and cohesion is so key key on on set and how it really is about a team working together and i've had actors on this podcast and they almost all talk about the power of the team 
similar to athletes. And we all know the individual athlete who can be a bit of a jerk or self-absorbed or just obsessed with themselves and not focused on actually making others better and being a great teammate and collaborating. And at the end of the day, whether you're a show or a business or a sports team, you're trying to do something together. They're not individual experiences. So we need to think about how our actions and our behavior impact the people around us. And Brian did a wonderful job of really painting that picture for us. So I'll leave you with this on on this piece where we're really talking about building a strong organization, which is how can we challenge our best and brightest and most gifted performers to think beyond their needs and understand how their action in action actions impact those around them. At the end of the day, their actions are going to either positively impact those around them or negatively impact those around them. So they do need to get what they need to be well, like we talked about in the beginning, but they also need to be thinking about how that impacts the rest of the organization. So we start with ourselves in mind. We have to put our mask on first if we want to put others' masks on. We have to fill our cup first if we want to give the reserves and the overflow to those around us. But let's not forget to put other people's masks on. Let's not forget to give the overflow to other people if we want to have a strong organization. Let's not forget the vision of what we're trying to do if we're laying a brick and that we're trying to do something that's actually bigger than what we could do individually. And I think sometimes we get so engrossed and so obsessed with our own individual capacity and our own individual needs that we forget about how those impact the people around us. All right, so we're about halfway through. Through, I know I've done a lot of talking. Uh, hopefully my voice is holding up. Um, so the last two themes that we're going to hit on are a, a changing landscape is our third theme, and then artificial intelligence is our last theme. Uh, and a changing landscape just really talked about how the U.S. is changing, um, that what we look like, what we sound like is going to continue to change over the next 20, 30 years. But we also need to think about our relationship with China. So I've mentioned China before. There was some interesting stats. So in 2005, China had the fifth largest economy. And four years later, in 2009, they had the second. And by some estimations today, they actually are the largest economy. So depending on how you think about the largest economy, China is right there with us. And we really are one and two. Um, And so because of that, we need to be strategic and thoughtful about how we interact with China going forward. Uh, China and the U.S. are both superpowers, but we both have some insecurities. And those insecurities are often what drives us to feel threatened toward each other. And I look at countries from an organizational lens, like each of these countries has dominance, has power in their uh, government, in their military, in their economy. And yet we often feel somewhat insecure and that's what drives us to a certain degree. It drives us to beef up our technology. Um, and there was a lot of talk around China and that they're by far ahead in the electric car arm race. And that's going to impact us and potentially Europe as they try to get to less pollution. Um, so we'll have to make decisions. Once again, here comes the ethical dilemma. Do we do business with a country whose decisions are questionable at best when it comes to how they treat humans and how they treat people within their country? We're seeing this right now in our country with Saudi Arabia coming into our professional sports teams. You know, Do we do business with countries that don't align with our values? And these are decisions that we're going to have to continue to make through this changing landscape. And it's fascinating to watch from a sports standpoint. If you follow the PGA tour and the live tour, 
money talks in our country and, and is powerful in our country. And, and with that money comes potential ethical dilemmas that we're going to have to decide. Uh, there is a belief that China is behind when it comes to artificial intelligence. Um, but they are, um, once again, thriving in this electric car, um, sort of industry. So it sort of got me thinking a little bit about wars and are most wars a result of insecurity and people being threatened. Uh, I think of Japan, you know, bombing us, um, you know, does insecurity sort of drive wars and how does insecurity get seeped in to greed? Uh, we see what's going on with Russia right now. Um, how much does insecurity play a role in power grabs and power agendas? And with that in mind, how can we manage insecurity? And if we go away from the world and wars and these complicated issues and make it much more simple for each of us, how do our insecurities drive our worst behavior? And for our organizations and our companies, how do insecurities drive some of our bad behavior? And how can we manage for insecurity? How can we create psychological safety to make sure that our people are not feeling insecure? Because with insecurity comes feeling like we have our back against the wall and feeling like we have to take action, maybe with the short term in mind and without the long term plan. So I just think that was so fascinating to see from a uh, worldly perspective that insecurity is often what drives decision making around um, negative behavior from country to country. And I thought it also led to thinking about safety in a in a different way. So this was a mind blowing stat. It said 60% of Chinese Americans feel unsafe in the US. Think about that 60% of Chinese Americans feel unsafe in the US like that's mind blowing stuff. If you're a Chinese American, you're more likely to feel unsafe in our country than safe. And that's a damn shame. And we've seen this, obviously, after 9-11 with Muslims. Uh, we saw it with Japanese uh, in internment camps. We've seen it uh, in racist ways <clears throat> throughout our, our existence. And it makes me think a lot about when we are going through challenging times, how can we create security for those that are most vulnerable and make sure we actually over-index and take care of that. Um you know, I'm Jewish and you probably have heard me reference my grandma's experience in the Holocaust. And there, there was a stat shared uh, once again, as we think about a changing landscape in our country, a 2020 study found that 60% of millennials and Gen Z didn't know that 6 million Jews were killed in the Holocaust. So that means that there are people that are listening to this conversation that are not aware that 6 million Jews were killed in the Holocaust. So it's heavy stuff and it leads to just, once again, th these ethical dilemmas of how do we continue to educate and make people feel safe while also understand the potential disasters that the worst of humanity can rain down on us. And we need both. Um, and it also leads to the ethical dilemma, you know, do we do business with countries that make our world a better place? Um, and so if, for example... China can provide electric cars in a really seeming, seamless and efficient way. Um, do we take them up on that, even if they're, you know, using human rights in a negative way? <coughs> Excuse me. So those are themes that I find fascinating. You know, is the juice worth the squeeze? Um, nothing's ever going to be perfect. All of us are imperfect. Countries are imperfect. Where is the line in the sand that says, 
we're going to take a risk and we're going to go for it. Um, and I think businesses have to make ethical dilemmas as well. Uh, look at what's going on in social media right now uh, with what we see you know, is social media net positive or net negative with what it's doing to our mental health? Um, it's connected us in a lot of ways, but disconnected us in other ways. So we have this changing landscape that we have to continue to address. We have to continue to assess and think about for all of us. And I think every business is always going through some sort of changing landscape. Um, and even as we're looking at our job situation and the changing dynamics that are at play at work and that each successive generation is staying at their job for less time. I mentioned that, you know, that Bruce Feiler concept of having five jobs. Well, we're also staying at our jobs for less time. Um, so the word career, for example, was invented a hundred years ago, then came the resume. So what's next for us? What's now? How do we want to think about our job? How do we want to think about work? Perhaps it'll evolve into something else with the changing and work from home and the power for people to add value from their computer. But these are things that I think we should all be thinking about that are changing in real time that we're discussing and we're trying to figure out hybrid work and work from home that perhaps what we say is our job today, there might be a different word that we'll use going forward. Um, and maybe we'll need to embrace that to a certain extent. And going back to electric cars, I mean, the CEO of Uber, Dara mentioned that they're going to be fully green by 2030. Um, they're incentivizing drivers right now to change to electric. And, you know, he focused most of his talk there around electric cars, but it's pretty obvious if you think about it, like AI, which we'll get to in a minute here, like is going to disrupt Uber in a profound way. We've got self-driving cars that are already here. And once again, Dara's going to have to make a decision on what's best for the company. Uh, which I'm sure getting rid of drivers would reduce the cost that they have to pay out to the drivers um, while still valuing his drivers. So he's at a place right now where they haven't gotten to. Uh, they can't have an artificial intelligence fleet. It's not approved yet. They're not that far, but they have to think about that. It's huge. And it was interesting to hear him focus on electric cars when to me, that's going to probably happen. But the AI it's a much more interesting conversation. Um, and it was interesting because he kind of minimized the AI technology um, because in his mind, it's going to lead to more opportunities for their drivers. But as a leader and someone who I think values authenticity, and I gave the story about how he drives Uber cars himself and seems like a humble dude. The reality is the most common job in our country is driver truck driver, taxi driver, Uber driver. I mean, driver is a massive, massive job. And as we get to AI in a minute, it threatens driver. So while Dara was optimistic that things will work out, I think it's something that he should, he obviously is thinking about, but all of us need to think about, you know, when does business start to really ruin our society? And when does capitalism go too far? And I certainly believe in capitalism. I think it's the best of all the imperfect uh, options that you have in a society. But we're going to get to a, th a threshold here with artificial intelligence where we really need to think about how it's going to impact us and how it's going to impact our society. So once again, there's this changing landscape that is here. It's changing, it's evolving, and we're going to see how it all plays out. And you can see this changing occurring in our demographics. 
you know, by 2024, it's believed that whites will be in the minority. So we have a minority, whether it's Hispanic, Asian, uh, African-American, continues to rise and whites continue to diminish. And that's going to change how we think about business and how we think about our culture. And um, right now we have 6.1 million people that are unemployed and we have 10 million jobs. We also have 11 million undocumented people. So think about that. Let's call it a 4 million person delta. Like we need 4 million more jobs. We have 11 million undocumented people. And it's become really hard to get into this country uh, from a visa standpoint. And so these are things that need to constantly evolve, change, that go way beyond my pay grade. But I wanted to bring your attention to it because I found it to be really fascinating just to sit where I'm sitting and to think about how do we solve problems. And it speaks to why politics does matter and that we do need to bring in leaders that can help solve some of these big challenges because we have so many jobs now. We'll see what happens with artificial intelligence and its role on jobs, but we aren't filling our jobs. And yet there are people that do want to come here and and would love to work. Um, And that our unemployment actually is quite low right now. If you look at the span of our of our existence. So these are things that I think are just fascinating to think as the world continues to change. And despite differences of how we get to where we want to go, there were all these panels on dealing with what they called wicked problems, those things like immigration and gun control in China. And while there were different people in the panel, and they did do a really good job of having some diverse thought uh, and backgrounds uh, on their panels, it seemed as though there was consensus on on a lot of these wicked problems. I listened to all these panels, and while they were in discourse, there were knowledgeable, competent people that actually agree on, on what makes sense. Um, and we need more of these in-person discussions and less snippets behind computer screens because we really do agree on things like abortion and, and banning assault rifles more than we disagree. And yet it gets lost in the, in the shuffle when we get into the political arena. And to me, that was a big, big takeaway is as we become more and more segregated behind computer screens, we need to intentionally create spaces for us to be in person, to solve big challenges, to solve big issues. And that can be from a business standpoint. If you're looking to innovate, there the discourse that happens when you're in person, the respect, the trust, the ability to look someone in the eye and say you agree, uh, the relationships that can get built in person are just stronger. And I am very much a, a believer in working from home, plus spending time on on-site, uh, spending time on off-site, um, and being really intentional about when we come together, making sure that we're building community, that we're building relationships, that we're building uh, you know, deep, deep work together. Um, so it's clear we need more workers. We need to create a better system to incentivize legal immigration uh, to our work. And these are things that really Americans agree on. Um, so I'm not getting into the political elements of what I believe or what I don't believe. My big takeaway is that we need courage from our political leaders to create change for a changing landscape in our country. And we need to be really intentional and thoughtful about electing people that are going to be brave, that are going to be courageous, and are going to try to move this country in the right direction. It does matter. We have a lower percentage of immigrants than we did in 1910. Think about that. And we have all these people that want to come over uh, for a year and, and work and experience America. And then we let them go back and we don't actually leverage their skills to make our country better. Um, so 
there was this ideology that both political parties are really broken, but there's still good things happening and good people within our system. I've met Congress people. I've met senators. I've met presidents. Like there are good people that want to do this work, but we do have to figure out this two party system, which really does breed decisiveness. And so there were people that spoke at the conference, specifically Thomas Friedman, bestselling author, New York Times author, where he talked about the idea of ranked choice voting plus open primaries can really change our system to make it less divisive and really help make people make decisions that are best for the people that they serve. And so ranked choice voting, which is used in Alaska, I think they use it in New York City, is that instead of voting for one person, you'd put in order the people that you're voting for so that the people can't necessarily attack each other for fear of being the fourth person on that list. And then open primaries, just getting away from I'm a Democrat, I'm voting for Democrats, I'm Republican voting for Republicans, really open up the primaries to be able to vote for either. So an open primary is a primary election that does not require voters to be affiliated with a political party in order to vote for a partisan candidate. So those are things politically that I think are important for us to be informed on. And once again, if we want to continue to make our country better, we need to change the landscape a little bit. And we need to think about how we can evolve our systems and our processes and our society so that we can all be better off in the long run. And if I go away from politics, I think this is the same thing for our businesses and for our organizations and our teams. How can you continue to evolve? How can you innovate? Don't just do things the way they've always been done. That's not a good reason to continue doing something. And so look underneath the hood, find are there unique ways to innovate your processes and your systems and update them and almost use it like an iOS update. Like, hey, we should update this every year. Let's figure out our our manual and our plan and let's make sure we're getting better and we're improving. Um, There was a lot of talk around Trump and um, how politicians should interact with him and what the future will hold. Um, And this was the quote that really stuck with me. If you don't change, you either aren't paying attention or you don't care. And that's John McWerther. And once again, regardless of what you think of Trump, um, we need to think about how we can change and evolve and get better and progress. Um, And forget Trump. I would also say the same thing about Biden. We have two people that are old that are seemingly going to run for president and they are going to do things the way they probably have done for a lot of years. And there were a lot of questions at the Ideas Festival, regardless of political party, around both of them being fit to run. And I think the president, while it's not everything, we need young blood in there. We need a changing landscape. We need to evolve it. And we need people to step in with new ideas and new ways of doing things and people that are not going to be asleep behind the wheel. Let's be honest. Like when you have people that are in their late seventies and early eighties running the most powerful country in the world, it is going to be problematic. So I don't sit here to tell you how to vote or how you should be thinking about it, but I do think there was a theme throughout the conference around we need to empower some younger people and and have them step up and have the courage to take stances that will change with our changing landscape. Uh, There was a statement that our working class is not represented in our media anymore. Now it comes from our top universities who think, but they're not necessarily in the weeds you know, doing the work. So we need to rethink and reshape how we have these, um, these things like the media to make sure that they're representative and not just seemingly from one, um, area or one walk of life. So, uh, 
there are many ways to help our society. There was a lot of talk about, you know, do you give a man a fish or you teach a man a fish? Look, I think it's both. I think we need to feed people while also creating opportunities for people to work and earn. And once again, get that fulfillment, get that digging experience so that they can feel happy and satisfied and healthy. So as we think about the changing landscape, I really would blend the first two. We need people that are healthy and, and have well-being, and we need to have organization, uh, and we need strong systems and organizations. So I've always found that to be the way that it needs to be, is like we need to feed people, make sure that their basic needs are taken care of, and we need to try to empower them and create um, systems and incentives to help people uh, work feel the fulfillment and satisfaction of work and feel valued. Um, and so as a country, we need to grow and become more creative to become a nation of learners. Uh, and perhaps if we all are more focused on learning, we can become a more curious, empathetic, open-minded, and smarter society. And by the way, thanks for being here. You're here because you want to learn. If you're still listening to my ass, you know, however long we are into this, like I appreciate it because you're probably interested in learning. And by the way, all of the stuff I'm sharing with you is not coming from me. It's coming from these brilliant people that I heard from. And we need to think about our education as a rising tide that can lift all boats, formal education, informal education. And we need to continue to give the opportunities to our people to step into whatever education they want to step into. Speaking of education, the piece that I probably got most educated on is artificial intelligence. So that'll be our last theme on the podcast today. And make no mistake, artificial intelligence is an ethical dilemma. And what we're going through right now is the question around is the juice worth the squeeze when it comes to artificial intelligence. There's no question and it can be used for amazing utilities. Like maybe it can help us solve cancer, right? Like this is a massive, massive tool with all kinds of potential. And we've seen previous massive tools that can be used for good and can be used for bad with the internet, social media, nuclear bombs. Um, and when we manage these advances, a lot of good can take place. But when we don't, a lot of harm can take place. Think of social media. We have not done a good job of managing, regulating how these tools are going to be used. And there are a lot of nefarious ways that social media is being used to hurt our society. So we need to be able to get the good juice out of AI without squeezing our society in long long-term unhealthy ways. And that dilemma really was a big, big piece to what I learned about at the conference. And there were people on different sides of this. There were people that believe that AI is the end of the world and, and we're, we're really in doom and gloom. And then there's another part that believes humans will figure it out. We've always figured it out. And, you know, we're going to create processes and we'll use it for good. And then there were others that were somewhere in the middle where it's like, hey, we need to regulate this. We need to be thoughtful and intentional about artificial intelligence. And we need to also believe in our ability to uh, regulate it. And so to me, I think you t I tend to go toward the middle there. I think AI can be used for tremendous purposes and we need to be thoughtful about how we're using it to make sure it doesn't get used for negative uh, purposes. So that was a big, big ethical dilemma and something that was talked a lot about. Uh, I didn't know this, but artificial intelligence, it's been around for a while now. I didn't think of things like Alexa or Google Translate and Google Maps as artificial intelligence, but they are. The difference is, is that the last few years, there's been this exponential growth in the technology that's being used for artificial intelligence and really creating 
more and more predictive machines, more impressive predictive machines that go beyond what's existed in the past and goes beyond the data. So we're seeing breakthroughs that even exist beyond Google and Microsoft. And here comes some of the scary part of artificial intelligence is that a lot of the breakthroughs might come outside of those big companies. Certainly it's scary if those companies control it, um, but AI is going to continue to evolve outside of those companies. So it's going to be hard to control it. If you think about nuclear bombs, our society made a lot of rules and regulations to limit who would have them and what they would do and how they would use them. And we came together as a, as a globe to make sure that it wouldn't lead to the end of civilization. Um, I'm not saying artificial intelligence is that, but that example is certainly being used that our world needs to come together to think about how they're going to manage artificial intelligence. And going back to the China conversation, therein is a big, big rub, which is, well, what if we value different things than other societies? And even within our own society, there are people that value different things. So how do we create a common framework, a common system that limits the nefarious uses of AI? And that is a big, scary question. Um, And we need to think about how to do that while also using AI to coach our salespeople and to get better in business and to help people become more educated and, and help our school systems have more equity. I mean, there's all these positives, but there's also potential negatives as well. Um, so we need to collaborate. We need to work together. Collaboration was a big theme throughout the conference that if we're not going to collaborate and we're going to be isolated, um, we're going to run into a world of trouble. I think it's one of the big misconceptions of American culture is this idea that it's all about the individual getting ahead and getting the house and getting the car. America is America because we collaborate. We work together. Uh, at the end of the day, our society is communal. We are very, very communal in the way we operate with each other. We've created these cities that that share and share best practices and, and help each other. And so we're going to need to be collaborative when it comes to artificial intelligence. Uh, and the, the basic premise that I heard over and over again is that some jobs will be created from artificial intelligence, some will be lost, some will be gained, and others will just be changed. But really the extent of which AI will impact each of us is still an unknown. It's kind of like that China deal. Like we don't know because we don't know the values that are underpinning artificial intelligence. Just so we don't know the values of China. So anyone who says otherwise is really being pretty presumptuous. But certainly artificial intelligence has been in the news and there is a need for guardrails. A lot of the big companies are coming out and saying that we need to do it. Even the people that created, you know, chat GPT are coming out and saying, Hey, we need guardrails. And I think of it like, Hey, we have guardrails around driving a car. We have guardrails around drinking and smoking and, um, gambling, uh, medical practices, law, taxes, the stock market, like artificial intelligence is going to need some of that. And a free artificial intelligence intelligence world would be a double-edged sword because it'd be good for 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 doing a lot of good but it also adds a lot of potential harm for bad so the ultimate question is how do we as a society point artificial intelligence toward the good and minimize the bad and i really do believe and the people that i heard speak at the conference really emphasize this is going to need to be a public private partnership and we're going to need to work together and be bold while still being responsible. Um, and that to me is the phrase, how do you be bold while responsible? And if we move away from artificial intelligence, and if you're listening to this and you're a business owner, I would ask you that same question. How can you be bold while still being responsible? 
And ultimately, that polarity of being bold and courageous while still being responsible is so, so critical for our society. Think of our politicians. How can they be bold while still being responsible? Uh, And then this bold stat really stuck with me. So the stat was that 50% of artificial intelligence researchers believe that there's a 10% or greater chance that humans go extinct from our inability to control artificial intelligence. I'll repeat it again because there's a lot in that stat. 50% of artificial intelligence researchers believe there's a 10% or greater chance that humans go extinct from our inability to control AI. It's a pretty mind-blowing stat. Like, can you imagine signing up to be a researcher and to work on AI and believing that what I'm working on gives us a 10% or greater chance that humans go extinct from our inability to manage this thing? I haven't seen Oppenheimer, uh, the movie, but I would imagine there were a lot of people involved with the nuclear bomb that were conflicted and had an ethical dilemma as far as whether or not this thing should be created. And so I think artificial intelligence is having its moment right now. And there's a lot of discussions and and conversations around, is this thing going to be good or is this not going to be good? And social media didn't really go through this. Like it wasn't Facebook when it started out was not social media as it is today. And uh, there's a great documentary called The Social Dilemma, which talks about how a lot of people that were creating these tools didn't realize the harm they were doing um, and until it was too late. And the addiction and the way that they're programmed and the way that really our, our devices are designed to hijack us, our attention, our focus, our motivation. And it's really doing a whole lot of harm to everybody, including me. And trust me, I love Twitter. I love LinkedIn. But there is a price that you pay if you're going to be active and engaged on there. And I'm not sure it's net net positive for us. We have to think the same way when it comes to artificial intelligence and the role that it's going to play um, in our elections, the role it's going to play in our businesses. And there's a, a strong belief that artificial intelligence is going to really impact us in a variety of ways. Um, here's a little nugget for you that might be helpful that, that stuck with me. There's a lot of deep fakes that are going on where someone will call your grandma and and they can mimic your voice or uh, they can use artificial intelligence for all kinds of bad purposes and for your family to have a safe word so that the machine won't know that safe word. And um, so if someone's trying to get you to wire them money or, or do something and they're using artificial intelligence, you can ask them, hey, what's the safe word? And if you can program your family to do that, that could be really, really beneficial. The last thing I'll say on artificial intelligence, and then we'll close this episode, uh, is just that AI really reveals our biases and our own toxic behavior and holds a mirror up to us. So we talked about that mirror in that window earlier. I think artificial intelligence at the end of the day is, is be, it got created by humans and then is taking off, you know, based on the systems that we started. Um, so it's going to leverage the worst of us and the best of us. And just like we're imperfect, so too will AI, but its potential for power is more expansive than a singular human. And that's the scary part. 
So we need it to not just be a problem solving mechanism, but also a problem finding mechanism. And we need to be aware of the biases that it's going to hold, um, just like the biases that we have as human beings. So in closing, uh, whether it's discussing artificial intelligence or China or guns or racism or immigration or politics or a movie set or our overall happiness and well-being, so much of this festival was about our power of collaboration. And working in isolation is going to limit us. Whereas working together can solve the complex challenges that, that our time will continue to bring to us and present us. We're moving toward a multiracial, religious, and cultural society, and the barriers are going to continue to come down. We're open sourced, and not just in our technology, but in our relationships with the connectivity that we have and the technology that we have. And with that may come challenges to our traditional values. So the question is not about how we can get rid of those traditional values, but instead how we can integrate them in to the world that we live in tomorrow. And therein lies one of the biggest pieces that I want to leave you with is that what we've done in the past is so, so valuable. And we have to think about what cathedrals we're building, what bricks we need to continue to lay and how we need to do it together. We need to keep our greatest traditions while being open to creating new ones. We need to collaborate to bring out the best in us. Diversity and inclusion is about creating and celebrating and cherishing our similarities while creating space for our differences. And I started this conversation by saying a lot of the conference was about a polarity. I believe we can do both. We can create space for our differences while still celebrating our similarities. We can value our traditions while creating new ones. So with that, I wish you all the best. If you enjoyed today's conversation, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. Ideally, it's five stars. Um, you can also listen to all of these conversations on at strongskills.co slash podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter at Brian Levinson. LinkedIn, I'd love to connect with you at Brian Levinson. And if you're interested in working with me at some point, feel free to email me. Once again, it's brian at strongskills.co. Um, and lastly, thank you. Thanks for listening. If you listen to this rant for as long as you have, uh, my voice is tired. I had to stop in the middle and get some water. Um, but I appreciate you for listening. If you have any thoughts on any of these topics, I'd love to hear for you, hear from you, maybe in person at some point as well. So thanks for listening. Thanks for being a member of our tribe and collaborating with me today. And I will talk to you again real soon. Take care, everybody.